ask you to open your Bibles again this morning to the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We'll read a passage from chapter 2 and then also consider a few verses from chapter 3. If you remember correctly, uh, we had three points in our sermon last Sunday and we got through point one. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week from the book of Genesis. And for those that have not been with us the last few Sundays, we are uh, began a series and we began it from the standpoint of it has become a matter of life or death. I fear sometimes that people think I'm just a pessimist and a prophet of doom and uh, I need to look on the bright side more often and things of that nature and, and, and I'm, there's no doubt there are times when that is certainly true. Uh, however, if we will be honest and look around, and it's not just an issue for Faith Missionary Baptist Church, but it is an issue for true churches all across, and even those that are not true churches, but uh, churches and Christianity and, and their prosperity and their, their health and so forth has become a matter of life and death. I mean, it really has. Churches are dying by by, you know, the, the hundreds uh, every year. Being on the Sunday School Committee, I, I, I watch our numbers as they plummet, uh, and it's not that uh, people don't like the literature. It's not always, at least, that the literature is not quality or it's too expensive. We'll call back and we'll find out the church says, well, we've had to close our doors. We just had to close our doors. And several of the churches that I've pastored in the past, I, I, I now have contact with some of those members, and, and some of them are at the uh, verge of closing, and the others have already closed. Uh, the church that I surrendered to preach in uh, breaks my heart, but they are in the last few months if the Lord doesn't change. We can, we can smile and we can pretend that it's not that bad, but... It has become a matter of life or death for the Lord's churches. We have got to understand that we have got to be busy doing what God has sent us to do. There is very little outreach done most, uh, in, in most of our churches now. Uh, very little to have an impact in the community. We've talked a lot about the idea that we used to do a great deal of visitation We've stopped that because it didn't work, and that's a fine thing to do. I mean, when something is dead, you ought to bury it and move on to something else. But when, when you stop that activity, the question remains then, what did we replace it with? And, and, and you struggle to find most churches that have replaced it with something else. Say, well, we don't know what to replace it with. I understand that. But do we ask God? And I mean seriously, ask God to lead us and guide us and direct us and open the doors and, and then to bless the efforts that we put forth. We also have to understand that we live in a generation, in a culture, where many of the foundational truths that were commonplace and were uh, believed even among the lost of years gone by no longer is true. And so you got to change your dealings with them. You don't change the message. You don't present another uh, option uh, as opposed to salvation, but you have to understand you can't start from this level and, and begin to lead them to Christ if they're not at this level and they're not there anymore. 
They are not there, so we have to adjust the level that we approach them with. And so that's kind of what we have been talking about here lately. And and in our battle of resetting some of those foundational truths, we find in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, And the Lord God took the man, and he put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat. Notice, you may eat freely of it. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And the word surely there is because the Hebrew has dying you will die. And it speaks of two different deaths. And you've heard me mention that several times before. Now in chapter 3 we read, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of the, every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil." And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and that the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and, that they, and then they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves aprons. We began to look at this idea of resetting these, docu- uh, these doctrines that, that are, are, uh, were readily accepted among even the lost of a, of a generation ago. And, and we began to talk about the foundational truth, first of all, about God. That from the book of Genesis, we find that God is the creator. We do not find... Uh, tadpoles swimming in water that grew upon that, that crawled up on land and all of a sudden grew legs and all this and that and the other and turned into a this that turned into that that turned into that and eventually into a monkey and into a man you do not find that far-fetched uh impossible to believe quote-unquote theory nowhere in the word of god it makes no sense there's it, it's never happened it doesn't happen that way now You find that there is one God and he is the creator. We talked last week that not only is this God the creator, but he is the designer. He said that this is what you can do and this is what you cannot do. And I have put you here to do this and to do that. We'll talk a lot more about that this morning. But God as the creator, and get this this morning, as creator, God has the right to design life. Children of God today say, well, you've got no right getting in my life. You've got no right getting in my applesauce or my business and telling me what I can do, what I can't do. You have no right to tell me that this is right and this is wrong. We do have that right when it's based on the Word of God because God is the designer of life. It is not the Supreme Court that says what is good, what is right, what is wrong. It is God. It always has been and it always will be. And when the Supreme Court goes against what God has said, know this, God's not wrong. The Supreme Courts are wrong. God is the designer. He is the establisher of what is right 
and what is wrong, what is holy, what is righteous, and what is evil. It is a foundational truth that has been eroded away, and it just keeps eroding away. God is uh, beneficent. He is good. He is gracious. People get the idea, and I hear people say that God's like a, a kid with a magnifying glass and all of humanity is ants, and, and, and I hear people talk about that, that God is, uh, doesn't want us to have fun and God's only interested in all these laws and these do's and these don'ts. I heard a guy preaching this morning as I was coming here, and he was talking about the evils of legalism within churches, and, and I agree that we can become legalistic, but his point was made that he was saying, listen, you hear a preacher say that you can be saved, and if it doesn't change your life, you're not truly saved. He said, that's legalism. No, that's biblical doctrine. You cannot be lost, dead in your trespasses and sin, be born again in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and continue to live that old way. You cannot do it. It's biblical doctrine. Call it legalism. Call it whatever title you want to call it. But again, we see these things that were so commonly and assuredly believed among us that now are not being talked about anymore. God is good to humanity. He loves humanity. He created humanity in his own image. He put them in a garden and he said, Here, it's yours. I want you to domineer in this garden. I want you to run this garden. I want you to be above the, the elements. I want you to be above the animal. I want you to live in a place where you don't have to worry about hurricanes and tornadoes and all the bites and all the bugs and all the snakes. I, you will not have to worry about any of that he is a beneficent God regardless of what people say today he is judge because he is all these things he has the right to judge and when he judges he's righteous in doing so his judgments are true you may not like them I may not agree with them I may not like what his word reveals unto me for his word is a mirror that shows me as I truly am but it doesn't change the fact that is correct judgment. The foundational truth about God. We finished that last week. Let's talk about the foundational truth about man. Who are we? What are we? Are we the same we have always been? Do we just continue in our original state? Or has there been a change in humanity? This is one of the things that breaks my heart. I, I, it's, it's been corrected, and I'm thankful for that. But there have been churches that, uh, or missions that were, mission works receiving monies from our churches to, to pay their bills until they can grow a, 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 a sufficient number to pay their own bills. And, and they've had doctrinal statements that said man's really not as bad as the Bible makes him out to be. Now, they don't say it in those terms. But they say man is not really depraved. He just kind of has an attitude problem. Man has an attitude problem, but it's because they're depraved. We are a sinful people. We are a people that are so prideful in our sinfulness that we think we have risen far beyond men like David, men like Paul, men like Peter. We've risen far beyond uh, the nation of Israel to the point where we no longer have to deal with sins the way that they had to deal with sins. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. 
But what is the truth about man? What is the foundational truth about man? As we look into the Word of God in the book of Genesis, we find that they are a created being. You know the story, although we didn't read it this morning from the book of Genesis, where that God had taken the dust of the earth and he formed it into the, the, the shell of man and he bent over, if you will, and he breathed into the nostrils of that clay mound the breathings of lives, and that's plural. He breathed into that dust the breathings of lives, and from that moment, man became a living soul. And the Bible tells us that we were created in God's image. And we'll talk about this morning, and, and as we've looked at our, our text, we have Satan that comes along in the form of the serpent, and he tells Eve, listen to me, God is playing a game with you. God is a mean God, and, and he knows that the day that you eat of this fruit, you're going to become just like him. Here's the funny thing. When Adam and Eve was created, they were created in the image of God. They couldn't have been much more like God than they already were. What Satan offered them, they already had as much as they could have, at least what was good for them. The only thing that they were missing was the knowledge of evil. That's all they were missing. Satan says, listen, God has said, you can't eat of all these trees, hadn't he? Begins the process of doubting. And, and then he sets the idea that, well, why has God said this? But all along, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. And, and, and they enjoyed that sweet fellowship with God. Man did not come, again, from some uh, single-cell amoeba that crawls here and this and that and the other, and all of these things take place. But God created a world, spoke it into existence. He said it was all good. And then he said, as the very apex of all of it, at the very top of it all, I'm going to create a being in my image, and I'm going to give this to him and tell him, here, it's yours. Enjoy it. Work it, keep it, enjoy it. And man sacrificed all that. He was given a purpose. Not only was he created, but he was given the purpose of keeping the garden and working the garden. For all of those that have said that working is a result of the fall of mankind, you've misread scriptures. From the very day one in Garden Eden, man was to work. God did not create us to be lazy. And if you want to look at scriptures closely, you're going to find out God is not a, a big proponent or fan of lazy people. God created us to work. In fact, we talk about our work week being how many days? What's God say about working? Six. <laughs> Six days. Now, I was making this point preaching through the book of Genesis at another church, and there was a young man that, that was unemployed, and he got, took great offense and, and said that I was preaching at him and I'd singled him out, and, and, and I'm not. I'm making a point that we are created to work. The fall after that man had sinned, it simply says that work was in, it, it became a more difficult task because now we've got thorns and thistles and we've got all these other issues. But man was intended to work from day one. In fact, the Bible says the man that does not work and take care of his family is worse than an infidel. That's a strong statement. I'm glad I didn't make it. I'd make all kinds of enemies. 
God made it. We are to work. This young man that I mentioned a minute ago came to me and he said, Well, I, I tell you what, Jeff, I just I can't find a job. Well, what are you looking for? Where have you been? He said, Well, I, I get the paper out and I look online and there's all these jobs, but they don't pay this and they don't start here and they don't do that and I want a job where I can make this much money and start here. I said, well, where are you leaving for God to lead you in any of this? What if God leads you to go start a company digging a ditch for $5 an hour? Well, I'm not going to work that cheap and I'm not going to work that hard. Are we talking to God? Are we praying? Are we asking? Are we looking? Adam was created and given a responsibility. Let me tell you something. Man without responsibility is a bad situation. Just take you a teenager and give him no responsibility at all and just see what he turns out to do. Man without responsibility is not a healthy environment. We are to work. God gave us a purpose. Work the garden. Now work, yes, became much more difficult because of the fall. But it's not a result of the fall. It was always to be that way. Man was created. He was given a purpose. He was given a command and he was told the result of it. As we mentioned, Satan comes along and he says, Has God really said you can't eat of any of these trees? You see, Satan is focusing on and, and turning the invitation of God to enjoy all this into the prohibition of not enjoying any of it. God said, listen, all of these trees are yours and you can eat of all of them with the exception of this one. Satan comes along and he twists every bit of that. But man was created, put in, an, in the perfect situation, and he was given a purpose you stay busy, you stay uh, focused on your purpose, you spend a lot less time being likely to fall into trouble. You know these to be true, don't you? When you see kids, just let them all gather up around each other and give them no purpose and don't keep them busy doing something. I'll promise you, it's not long till one's pushing the other, one's, one's kicking here, and one's, you know, give them a purpose, keep them busy. Why? Because that is the way God created us. And when we mess those things up, now we become a people that, that, that have too much free time on our hands and too much energy, and, and we just find a way to get ourselves into trouble. Given a command, and we've been given a result for its breaking. Do not eat of that tree. One of my, and I haven't said this in a long time. Uh, and probably because I've gotten uh, some flack from, parent, from different people in years past that, that have read Dr. Spock's book on how to raise kids. Now, that was their first mistake. But I, I've mentioned a time or two that when I was a kid, mom and dad would tell us to do this or don't do this. They would give us the command. And as a little kid, there's a three-letter word that we like to say in response to a command, to do or not to do something. What is it? Why? You know what my mom and daddy always said? Because I said so. And I've had people get all up in arms. Ah, oh, that's wrong. You ought not raise a kid that way. Why not? 
Does that kid not need to learn the authority of somebody that is over them and that the authoritative figure does not have to give a reason for everything? Adam and Eve did not need to understand why and what would happen and all that. All they needed to rest upon the fact God said we can have all of this goodness but that one thing we ought to stay away with. Here's the problem with children of God. Here's the problem with humanity. Instead of saying there's a tree we can't have and we can have everything over here, what should Adam and Eve done? If I can't eat of that tree but I need all those, what should they have done? I ought to stay myself right over here, hadn't I? I cannot eat of that tree in the knowledge of good of, of, in the middle of the garden when it's there and I'm here. You just can't eat of it. Your arms aren't that long. Stay away from it. Stay away. Too many children of God try to figure out what we can do and what we can't do and still be okay. When the, when the Word of God has laid forth the paths of life, don't see how close to the edge you can travel on it. Stay away from the edge. Stay over here where you know you're on good, solid ground. Man was created and, and, and was told, do not eat. For the day that you eat of it, physically you will start the process of dying, and spiritually, instantaneously, right then and there, you will be dead in your trespasses and sins. You will be separated from me. Satan was right in that he told them that the day they ate of it, they would know knowledge of good and evil. They did now because they went and hid themselves and tried to cover up their nakedness and their shame. The foundational truth about man is that because of this, now he has a thirst for sin. He has a thirst for sin. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, begin reading in verse 10 with me. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is, anybody there yet? What's that next word? There is what? None. There is none that are righteous. And in case you stumble on what that means, what does he go on to say? No, not one, not even one. Now, I understand society doesn't want to hear this. I understand people don't want to go to churches and hear that they're, they're, that they're sinful. I get all that. I don't go to the doctor unless I know I'm sick. And I don't take his prescribed cure for it unless I know I need it. I'm sick. I'm going back tomorrow. Went a couple weeks ago, you got the flu. I've gone through a couple, three different rounds of this, that, and the other, and I'm still coughing so bad and, and, and tearing up a box of Kleenex every day. I'm going to go back tomorrow. There's still some symptoms, and I know that things are not yet right. I'm going to the doctor. If we take away the knowledge of our sin, what's going to push us to the doctor? Jesus. There is none that is righteous, not even one. Verse 11, there is none that understands. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are gone, or they are together become unprofitable. 
There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, look at verse 12. They are all gone out of the way. What's the only way you can go out of the way? Where had you had to be first if you gone out of the way? At one time, you were in the way, weren't you? You can't go out of the way without being in the way. Notice in verse 12, he says that there is none that, or uh, pardon me, that they are together become unprofitable. How do you become unprofitable? What first must have been true? At some time, you were profitable. Paul is trying to get us to understand that man was created profitable. Man was created in way but now he has opted to go out of the way and he has become something that is not profitable any longer and he gives three different areas in which man fails number one he is not righteous and he goes on to say there's not even one of you that are now you have to understand these statements as made in relationship between us and God are there some philanthropists in our world yeah. Are there some good moral people? Yeah, there are. But as it pertains to man's relationship with God, there's not anybody who is righteous. Even those morally good people. And it's not just their, their, their righteousness, but their understanding. Paul says there are none that understand. Does that mean all males and females that have ever walked this earth and that are walking this earth now are ignorant and, and illiterate and they can't, they can't cipher, as Jethro Bodin used to say? Not, not. No. People can add. People can read. Good gracious, we put men on the moon. And every now and then we flirt with the idea of trying to put somebody in Mars. The technology, the, the, the understanding that man has. But you've got to put this in our relationship to Jesus Christ. We do not understand God without Jesus Christ. Paul said these things are spiritually learned. And the carnal man cannot conceive of them. God's spirit has to enable us. That's what conviction is. It's convincing us that these things are true. Then as we become a child of God and we are now saved, his spirit helps to enlighten us so that we gain in this understanding. Paul says there is none that is righteous, there is none that understands, and there is nobody that goes out seeking after God. And again, if you apply this to outside of that relationship through Jesus Christ, then you're going to be wrong. Because, see, our world has been filled with seekers. But without God dealing with us, we don't seek God through Jesus Christ. How did Adam and Eve seek? Well, we'll make our own skins and we'll cover our own sins. We'll cover up our own inadequacies. Religion today says we'll, we'll be moral and we'll be good and we'll do this and we'll do that and we'll seek God through this and we'll seek God through that. Paul says the result of mankind and his fall in the Garden of Eden is that he has developed a thirst for sin and a, a, a lack of thirst for God. The next foundational truth I want to hurry and talk about is the foundational truth of sin. And it begins with unbelief. Eve, God has said this. 
Why? And, and what did he really say? And what did he really mean? Now, I understand there are people today that don't like to read the King James because of the old English and, and all this and that and the other. And I don't have a problem with any of that. But let me tell you something. There is nothing... There is nothing that not even my grandkids cannot understand about all of these trees you can eat. But that one tree right there, the day you eat of that tree, surely you will die. There's nothing mystical about that, is it? There's nothing dark. There's nothing hard to understand. There's nothing that is unfathomable there. I can eat of everything except for that tree, and that tree I cannot. Satan wants to get us to doubt. Has God really said these things? Does God really want churches to practice discipline? I mean, don't they realize that's going to turn some people off? Does God really want Christians to do this and to do that? Does God really want Christians to abstain from certain things and not find themselves involved in these things? Listen, I, I, I've listened to arguments and I've tried to talk to those that just are convinced that you can drink and it's okay with God as long as you do it in your house and you're not getting drunk and you're not getting pulled over. Where are you going to get it from? Where are you going to go get your alcohol from? Unless you're making it in your own house, you've got to go buy it somewhere. Now, when I go and buy it somewhere, let's say that the next week that guy happens to be driving down my road and his truck breaks down, and so he comes and he knocks on my door and he wants me to be able to let him use a phone or something to help him out, and all of a sudden he remembers, you're the guy that was in my store the other day buying alcohol. I have just slammed shut the door that God may have opened for me to tell somebody about Jesus Christ. How am I going to witness to this guy when he has seen me in his store? See, there are just things that, 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 that we are supposed to keep ourselves from, and yet we've raised a generation that says, has God really said those things? It begins in unbelief. Every sin begins in unbelief, and it leads to rebellion. If you view God to be the authoritative figure and what God says is right regardless of what you and I think about it, there's only one reason for me to rebel against him and that is if I don't believe what he said to begin with. I promise you, when my daddy said, son, you leave my, you leave my tools laying in the grass overnight where you've worked on your bike, and they rust up one more time, I'm going to wear you out. If that offends you, I'm sorry, but Daddy would tell us he's going to wear us out. And it did us some good, a lot of good. Sooner or later, my hard head realized quit leaving his tools out in the yard after I got wore out a few times. But see, the only reason I'd leave them tools out there again is if I really didn't think he'd wear me out for it. It begins with unbelief, but then it leads to rebellion. If you don't believe me, here, see this. The Bible makes it very plain. Sin, the guilt of sin is laid at the feet of men, not of women. I know Adam said, God, it's that woman's fault. And by the way, God, you're the one that gave, me, gave her to me. 
All right? I understand the passing of the buck and all that and the other, but the Bible lays the guilt of sin at our feet, men. You know why? She was deceived. We weren't. Which means when we ate of that fruit with her, what did we outright do? Rebelled. I don't care what you say, God. I'm eating this fruit. See, we don't hear preaching like that anymore. We don't talk about sin that way anymore. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute as we close. The foundational truth about sin is it's a matter of pride. In our text, it simply says that she looked at it and she saw it as something to make her wise. You know what would solve a lot of problems among children of God? Contentment. What if, what if God, what if Eve and Adam just say, you know what, serpent? We may not understand all there is to know about why God said not to eat of that. Other than if we do, we die and that's plenty enough for us. But you know what, we're kind of content that we know everything God wants us to know. And that's enough for us. I want to know more. I, I want to reach a little further. Pride. Not content with what God has blessed and God has given to us. This is a foundational truth about sin. And people can say, oh, man's getting better. No, he's not. No, he's not. Turn the news on if you believe that. We are not evolving. We are not getting better. We're not pulling ourselves out of the gutters of sin. Humanity as a whole is making their beds in the gutters of sin and finding it quite comfortable for themselves. It is deadly. It's easier to preach. It's more accepting to preach. That only the big sins. Or that sins are, 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 are just a part of our nature. And, and, and we're doing better. And we're increasing. And we're growing. And we're subduing it. And, we're, and all that. And it's easier to teach and preach. And to build a, a huge mega church. On the idea that you know. Oh, well everybody does it. It's okay. It's much more difficult. To show them that their sins deserve, have earned them a one-way eternal ticket straight to the devil's hell. But that's what the Bible teaches us. Then we factor in God's grace and his love that would pay that price and would allow us to be set free from it. You know, we, we might be tempted to look at all this and say, well, I agree with you, Brother Jeff, that the foundational truths about God and about man and about sin out in the world are being eroded away. And that's the mistake that Satan wants us to make. Because it's not just out in the world that these foundational truths are being eroded away, but it's being eroded away among God's people. And let me just give you this as an example of it. Okay, just real honest, practical, where the rubber meets the road. Psalm 29.7, or 27.9, I'm sorry, 
Psalm 27, 9 states this. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. This is a child of God who is praying to God in terrible fear that this time he has sinned and gone to a point that the consequences and the, and the, 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 the awfulness of sin has pushed him to a place not where God was going to take his salvation away because that cannot happen, but where God would literally withdraw his, his, his blessings and the presence and the fellowship and the protection. And he's crying out, Oh God, I am afraid that I have failed you and I have sinned against you to the point where I will wake up in the morning and you won't be there with me. And that fear, that fear is removed from God's people today. We are not afraid that God would ever do anything like that. We have talked about, we have preached security of the believer, and we ought to preach that. I am, listen, I am thoroughly convinced by the Word of God that once you're saved, you're always saved. But that's not what the psalmist is talking about. He's saying, God, I could sin and you could take from me your presence and your joy, and I'm afraid to face tomorrow without you. Read the 51st Psalm. The man after God's own heart said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, only against you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the uh, secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This is David. This is David. Who knew that I can't lose my salvation, but I can lose the joy of my salvation. Who knew that my sin could cost me the presence of God and His Spirit with me in my life. Sin has become such a light matter to us now. Gone are the days when preachers could preach and people would fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and they would hit the aisle before you could even get the first note sung. I remember the days. I was one of them that would hit that aisle before the choir director ever sang the first note and the Spirit of God, the Word of God had pierced my heart and I had realized that I had sinned and it was a terrible thing in the sight of God. And it needed to be dealt with. But we don't do any of that anymore. Oh, it's all right. 
It's okay. Resetting some foundational truths that are not absent not only out there but in here as well. We've mentioned for several weeks in a row now. Several weeks. The need to fall on our face before God. Because 10 years ago we quit visitation. We've never, we've never replaced it. We've mentioned it for weeks now and yet we still have come to the place where we get on our face before God in this altar and say, God, we failed you. We have, we have sinned. You told us to go out and to be salt and light. You told us that we are to ask. You told us that we ought to pray and seek your face. And week in and week out, and we still have yet to ask God to forgive us and to open our eyes and help us to see what we can do. Y'all, it has become a matter of life or death. And which one it will be will depend on what you and I do. Stick our head in the sand and just say, oh, it's all right. together bind as one somebody say you know what I, I, I we need to have a, a, a prayer vigil this week prayer meeting whatever you want to call it every night this week meet at church at 7 o'clock and just pray and ask God to open doors lead us help us to honestly seek what he could have us to do that would make a difference in this community so much more that we could do with God's blessings. But that's, that's it. We got to do. We got we to get up. We got to go. We got to do something. And I'm not one of those guys that says, let's do something even if it's wrong. I don't want you to do anything that's wrong. If you know it's wrong, don't do it. But I think if you'll search your heart, you'll know there was a time. There was a time when God's people was burdened about lost people. There was a time when God's people would shout glory or hallelujah in services because somebody they'd been praying for that was lost had walked an aisle. We don't do it anymore. There was a time when we realized how horrible our sin was before God. And we were afraid that if we didn't get it right and deal with that sin, that this might be the time God would remove those things from us. Are we that much spiritually beyond a man after God's own heart, David? Are we so far advanced spiritually that we would never, we would never deny him like Peter did? Really, are we there? Are we there? Or are we back where God said we were? You've become unprofitable in your sin. And sin is serious. If you don't believe it's serious, just look at a blood-stained cross where God sent his son to die. We need people that are going to step up and set examples. This church needs me as her pastor, her deacons,
to set, step up and take the leadership and say, we are going to get serious about our sin and our failure for the last however long. We are going to step up and seek what God would have us to do to reach a community. Thousands of people in Clark County. If they were to die today, would enter an eternity without Christ. What are we going to do about it? Father, come to you this morning. There's no anger. There's no... There's nothing other than just a, a looking at your word and, and, and a realizing that your heart was broken as you looked at the masses of humanity. Lives wrecked by sin. Homes broken apart. Because mothers and fathers were not both saved or one was and the other wasn't. Kids growing up in homes that never knew about God. Your son was so bothered by it that he went through a part of the world, Samaria, that no other Jew would go. And he went to a woman that was far beneath him. No other Jew would go and talk to her. God, help us tonight to ask for forgiveness. Help us to ask for vision. Help us to ask for open doors that we might reach them. God, help us to realize and to have that understanding that you could cast us off and throw us off as a people that have been so stubborn that they will not respond, and so you just cast them off. God, don't let that happen to us. Help us to soften ourselves before you. I ask these things in humility, in love, and and just ask that they be received that way and responded to through your spirit. And I ask these things in your precious name. Amen.